1: the bowery boys episode 245 the fall of the fifth avenue mansions hey it's the bowery boys hey support for the bowery boys is provided by our listeners join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash bowery boys
0: hi there welcome to the bowery boys this is greg young and this is tom myers And we've returned with the second half of our little dreamlike fantasy, where we step back in time and explore a life of Gilded Age prosperity on Fifth Avenue. In the era before Fifth Avenue became better known for department stores and luxurious hotels.
1: This is part two in our series about the history of Fifth Avenue's ritziest residences. It's the story about how society built mansions and luxurious homes along 5th Avenue in the in the 19th and early 20th century and in doing so, help define the street as, as something exclusive and as an address to aspire
0: to. Yeah, we spent a lot of time with Blue Bloods in that last show, and we shall be spending a little bit more time with them in this. However, we will be getting to the bottom of how Fifth Avenue then transitions in the 20th century from this hoity-toity residential area to a commercial district. And then how the street name, Fifth Avenue, kind of becomes a brand in itself. How did
1: these residences, and especially those mansions in the 40s and 50s, how did they find themselves demolished and replaced?
0: And at the end of the show, we'll actually give you a few addresses that you can visit or at least walk by today that are buildings that were originally constructed for residential use, but today find themselves in much different purposes. So join us as we go up the avenue to explore the fall of the Fifth Avenue mansions. Okay, Tom, this is part two of our series. So give us a little recap of part one, which was the rise of the Fifth Avenue mansions, essentially the creation of Fifth Avenue as this wealthy district.
1: Yeah, and as with any of our... Other little mini-series, if you haven't already listened to The Rise of Fifth Avenue Mansions, this would be a good time to hit pause uh, on on this recording and switch over to that one because right now I'm just giving a very cursory sketch of that show. Basically, Fifth Avenue was included in the grid plan of 1811, and it opened in sections from the south to the north. The first bit of Fifth uh, from Washington Square Park... North to 13th Street opened in 1824. The next section up to 23rd Street opened about 13 years later in 1837, and that continued up the avenue. Now, from the beginning, really the 1830s, the avenue attracted uh, many of the city's wealthiest families because of its proximity, remember, we're just in the southern part here, to the fine homes that were then lining the north side of the Washington Parade
0: Ground, which would become Washington Square Park. Some of the original old families of New York... Like the Rhinelanders.
1: Right, the Rhinelanders, the Brevorts, the Lennox family, many others. They constructed lovely family homes along the lower stretch. Now, as the city grew and it moved northward, the area near Madison Square became the next hotspot in the 1850s and 1860s. We talked about post-Civil War and the boom in the city. There were luxurious homes that lined fifth, Uh, But so, too, did hotels like the Fifth Avenue Hotel at 23rd Street and even shops. Also in the 1850s, the Astor family leapfrogged over Madison Square and built two mansions between 33rd and 34th Street on the west side of
0: 5th. And this would inspire other people of of relatively new wealth to flock around the Astors, including A.T. Stewart, the department store lord, who <laughs> lived across the street. But then soon Fifth Avenue here around Murray Hill and around the reservoir soon became the next destination for these super opulent homes.
1: Right. And meanwhile, here at the Astor family mansions, well you know, in a few decades later, the Astors would quarrel over, among other things, who was the quote, real Mrs. Astor, which would lead to the demolition of both family mansions here in the 1890s, and the construction of, eventually, what would become the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which was the largest and most opulent hotel in the world. But that's taking us to the 1890s, and by then, the rest of society had kept moving north, and they were really on a mansion building bonanza in the in the blocks of the 40s and the 50s all the way up to the corner the southeast corner of central park this included most notably in you took us on a tour of their mm-hmm. family uh, mansions the vanderbilts and all along this stretch there were fine homes lining fifth all the way up to the park We finished the show in 1895 when Carolyn Astor, Carolyn Skirmerhorn Astor, the real Mrs. Astor, hired Richard Morris Hunt to design a chateau for her, really, along Central Park between 65th and 66th. And this is because, of course, she had just demolished her mansion down at 34th Street. And once that had opened, between 65th and 66th, along the park... Mrs. Astor shifted the
0: social center north and along the park's edge. So by the Mm mid-1890s, people were beginning to look at this section of Central Park, or today's Upper East Side, as a new place to plant your wealthy manor. Right. What had been here before during the late 19th century? Well, as you mentioned, uh, by the late 1850s, Central Park had
1: opened, or at least a southern section had opened to the public. But for decades after that, residential development along the park would be very slow. It seemed kind of like a wild, you know, out of the way and hard to reach part of town. For example, an an arsenal was built here in 1848 at 64th Street uh, because nothing else was around it. It Mm -hmm. seemed like a safe
0: place, you know, to house military personnel. And the arsenals contained in the park today, but it predates the construction of the park, right? Yes, 1848.
1: Mm-hmm. And by the time Mrs. Astor opened up her chateau in the 1890s, the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, had already been around for years. It opened on March 30th, 1880. There was another cultural institution worth mentioning uh, along the stretch here, the Lenox Library. Uh, which was constructed at about the same time as the Metropolitan Museum. In the last show, I spent a little bit of time talking about James Lennox, mm-hmm. who built a luxurious home in the lower stretch of Fifth Avenue, and he had acquired quite a library. He was fiercely proud of this and also very protective of who had access to seeing his books and collections. Mm-hmm. In 1877... James Lennox uh, ran out of space for his book collection downtown. But as luck would have it, he had property up here in the 70s next to the park on his old Lennox family farm property. Remember that many of these old families were made quite rich because they owned vast expanses of land, like farm property and right. uh, estates.
0: And land that was only getting more valuable as the city was growing northward.
1: Right. So James Lennox hired Richard Morris Hunt to again, again to design for him in a, a marble austere library uh, between 70th and 71st on on Fifth. So that had been around for almost 20 years by the time the Astors moved up here. So you
0: had the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was within Central Park. At eightieth, mm-hmm. then you had the Lenox Library, which was just a few blocks down mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue. But those were the and an th- arsenal south of that, and an arsenal within the park, just south of that. But other than these three main structures, you didn't have much going on before the eighteen nineties. Right, there were lots of empty lots. Uh,
1: there were also smaller, much more modest homes and farms mixed in, but there were blocks that were virtually empty. So it was a really big deal then in 1895 when the Astors built their home here between 65th and 66. And because of that, many families would follow suit and build their dream homes in the blocks around them. But like Mrs. Astor, they were leaving behind their mansions down in the 30s mm-hmm. and 40s and even 50s. And really for the next 20 years, until the 19 teens, these families would be constructing along this upper stretch, you know, the Central Park stretch of Fifth Avenue and into the side streets that lead east of the
0: park. Mm -hmm. And this is a subplot that we will touch on a little bit later in the show. But Tom, the name of the show is The Fall of the Fifth Avenue Mansions. These places are going down. Well, so I'm going to spend a few moments here speaking about specifically all of these houses that we had just seen built on Fifth Avenue for much of the 19th century. What's incredible is that by 1900, this was perhaps the most famous residential address in the United States. But by 1925, so just 25 years later, most of the houses which garnered the street that reputation would be gone. Vanished. Completely erased from the landscape. But the reputation would would persist. Right. Now, this is a very complicated story as to how these changes occur. But let me start with the residents themselves, these wealthy families who had lived down downtown. Okay, the inherent problem with a fashionable neighborhood is that there's always the risk of something slipping out of fashion. With the new generations that were being born within these old houses of Fifth Avenue, these new generation of wealthy folk, they wanted new, fresh, modern homes, homes that had the latest technologies, for instance more sophisticated innovations than these old dowdy places. And even
1: opinions about interior design had changed. They'd, they probably wanted something that looked nothing like mom and dad's house. <laughs> Ex- exactly. Mums moms and dads or whatever
0: <laughs> they called their parents. So that is, you know, a, a universal thing that happens everywhere in the world. Mm. But that will be the sort of undercurrent of what will be happening here on Fifth Avenue. Meanwhile, the city itself is transforming in fascinating ways. With the center of the social scene always moving north, so too were other centers like the entertainment center. So what was happening by the 1900s, the start of the 20th century, was the theater district, the entertainment district of New York, was now encroaching upon their territory over to the west with the development of Times Square.
1: But wait a second. Times Square was two large avenues away over on 7th Avenue.
0: But that's not so far and the volume of theaters and entertainment venues and restaurants and clubs and everything could spill that, over yeah they were coming over with such rapid pace and keep in mind they were also they were also being accompanied by electric lights mm. gigantic signs and of course all the street traffic so with such volume which was streaming out north There was, of course, fears that it would find its way over here to Fifth Avenue pretty easily. Now, if you were really clamoring for a gigantic, opulent home that was new... Mm The middle of Manhattan by the beginning of the 20th century just didn't seem like the most logical place to invest and to build such a large house. And raise a family. Right. What became very appealing was, for instance, the Gold Coast, the northern shore of Long Island. Between the 1890s and the 1920s, over 500 mansions were built just on this little area. But that would take so long to get to if you lived in New York. Well, here we are at the start of the 20th century. And what made these places rather appealing is that they were actually close enough to the city that you were able to get here if you needed to in your brand new automobile. Ah. So by the 1920s, a lot of ultra wealthy folk had chauffeurs and they had their own cars. You know, this is the very essence of the Great Gatsby. If you will, at at this period, this this migration to the North Shore, this transferred wealth moving from the middle of Manhattan into the vicinity of greater New York sometimes with the same architects designing those homes. Oh, yeah, many... The the houses kind of looked the same. They were just much, much larger because you had more room.
1: Better gardens.
0: But just two examples of old families. William Kissam Vanderbilt II Mm -hmm. built the Eagle's Nest in Centerport, Long Island, which was built in the 1910s. Today, that's the home of the Vanderbilt Museum. Then Vincent Astor... He purchased an old mansion in Port Washington in 1922 and then renamed it Cloverly Manor. They all have to have these slightly spooky names to them, don't they? <laughs> I think I read a Nancy Drew book yeah. that took place at Cloverly Manor. The Phantom of Cloverly Manor.
1: Okay, so this explains rich families moving out to Long Island and to other places, Westchester, upstate New York, for country homes, weekend homes, sometimes full time homes. Uh, And keeping places, I take it, in the city? Because this show is about Fifth Avenue mansions. Many of them had already built them in Midtown. So what happened
0: to those homes? These homes that are just sitting there, right? That are now being vacated. Did they divide them up into condos? (laughs) Well, I mean, the idea of refitting... These mansions is not new, even as early as the mid-19th century, which you mentioned in, in the last show, Delmonico's restaurant moved into an old mansion, right? That's right, at 14th Street. So some of these houses were finding other purposes, but this trend of the fleeing wealthy would coincide with another a major development in New York City living. That would be the apartment complex, ah. and in particular, the apartment complex for The ultra wealthy by the start of the 20th century and especially after world war one it began to seem really absurd to keep a exceptionally large staff uh, to keep employing all these people and to live in a bunch of rooms that you were never in Mm -hmm. especially when by this time apartment living was becoming in vogue and rather trendy for the rich
1: And we've talked about this before. We've watched countless hours of Downton Abbey where they (laughs) discuss a similar theme.
0: And I certainly see how this could appeal to the next generation of Mm -hmm. these families. We have a couple podcasts about the early days of apartment living. One of them is actually called the first apartment building, which was called the Stuyvesant, which was south of Gramercy Park. But that was the 1870s, and it took several decades for this to catch on as not only an acceptable way to live, but a preferred one.
1: And this even caught on, of course, on Central Park West and over on Upper Broadway Mm -hmm. with buildings like the Dakota and the Ansonia.
0: So thus, land that some of these older homes were standing on, particularly those immediately north of Washington Square Park, Well, that land was worth a lot more if many wealthy people lived on it as opposed to just one family. So as a result, as early as the 1890s, many of these older houses were replaced by apartment buildings and by hotels.
1: But at the same time, hotels, especially hotels on Fifth Avenue were not just places for tourists visiting New York. They were also acceptable residences uh, for those who could shell out enough cash.
0: Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting to think of the hotel, at least in this period, as really an extension of the mansion. It really explains why so many hotels were suddenly able to spill onto Fifth Avenue at the start of the 20th century ...intermixed with these actual large mansions. In fact, remember old Vanderbilt Row with Mm -hmm. all of those Vanderbilt houses? Hotels were the first glamorous interlopers to flock onto this Vanderbilt district. For instance, the St. Regis, which was constructed in 1904 at 55th and Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. Then the Gotham Hotel, which was built on the opposite side of the street, constructed in 1905, today we call that the Peninsula. Ah. The Hotel New Netherland was actually built in the 1890s up on 59th Street and Fifth Avenue. It would be rebuilt in 1927 to become the Sherry Netherland. And then finally- Of course. In 1907, on the footprint of an earlier hotel came the Plaza Hotel, which for many years sat right next to that opulent Vanderbilt mansion right there at Grand Army Plaza. And the
1: Plaza, which by the way, we have another show dedicated to the Plaza Mm -hmm. from many years ago. The Plaza was designed, at least the second iteration was designed by architect Henry Hardenberg, who had also designed... The Waldorf Astoria
0: for the Astor family down on Thirty Fourth. Right now, you you see. You can't, you kind of see what's happening here. They they had similar architects. They all kind of looked the same. Mm-hmm. So vaguely French or German renaissance chateau. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me read to you from the New York Times about the opening of the Gotham Hotel in 1905. And again, the Gotham w- was the, the peninsula. Is is today's peninsula, correct? Quote, there are 400 sleeping rooms, single and en suite. "'The rooms opening on Fifth Avenue have already been spoken for. "'The furnishings of the Gotham, while extremely rich, are far from garish. "'There is not the slightest striving after gaudy effects, "'the whole atmosphere being one of good taste.' The main dining room is designed in the Italian style. The color scheme is red and dark green. And the massive pillars supporting the ornamented ceiling are a part of the general effect of stateliness. Hmm. So essentially... Sounds very tasteful. Right. They were basically tasteful companions to all these different mansions. So there was no fear, of course, at least in the early days, that there was going to be a lot of riffraff on the streets.
1: It's also interesting that this is a hotel, I guess, a hotel review in the Times, and yet they're already saying that even before the Gotham Hotel opened, the Fifth Avenue rooms had mostly been accounted Mm -hmm. for. They'd already been rented out. So this was a residential hotel. Uh Right. And I guess that makes sense, right? Because they have these lovely ballrooms, even larger spaces than people could afford to have in their own mansions or their own, you know, Mm -hmm. their own opulent residences, Uh, So it makes sense that wealthy people are moving into these hotels, which sit side by side with the mansions that are still there. But, of course, when I think of these hotels today, I think of taxi stands and Uber drivers um, and doormen who are helping people with suitcases. (laughs) That is to say... Tourists. So when did that happen?
0: So it's a general change in how people view hotels, right? Which happens over the decades, but but in itself contributes to these mansions eventually being torn down, because hotels would go from glorified apartments mm-hmm. to more transitory spots for people from out of town, uh, as as tourism becomes a bigger thing in New York. These hotels become, of course, largely valued for their location. You know, they're they're here at places that tourists want to see. That creates more foot traffic, drawing people who don't live on Fifth Avenue to this place as a destination. Soon these hotels became public spaces, far more than they were when they were originally constructed. That would, of course, spell out and change the culture of the street itself.
1: Okay, so I'm understanding then how... How this section of Fifth Avenue through Midtown here mm-hmm. uh, is changing, yes. welcoming these residential hotels, mm-hmm. staying rather upscale. Yes. But what about this section of Fifth farther downtown? Because we've talked about this in various shows. For example, the Ladies' Mile show mm-hmm. and the Garment District show. We know that things became different on Lower Fifth Avenue.
0: By the start of the century, there was almost wholesale demolition of these old mansions below 23rd Street, virtually wiping all of them from existence. And while, while some of these places were... Were replaced by apartment houses and hotels, which might be relied upon to keep up the quality of the neighborhood. Uh, most of that's the, in quotes, in quotes. By the way. <laughs> most of them were being replaced by something that was less socially acceptable, and that was the manufacturing loft. The New York garment district, as we had mentioned, we have a whole show on this, was born in the Lower East Side and employed tens of thousands of people. And actually made a good percentage of all of the United States ready-made clothing. It was growing so rapidly that at the beginning of the 20th century, these merchants with their huge manufacturing plants could afford to demolish these old homes build their new factories, and eventually they took over the lower stretch of Fifth Avenue. One famous example of these is close to Fifth Avenue on the eastern side of Washington Square Park, the Ash Building, which in 1911 was the site of the terrible Triangle Factory fire. But so these kinds of structures were being built all throughout this area and up towards 23rd Street, a bunning, of course, Ladies' Mile. And this happened fast. By 1905, a majority of the mansions, in particular between 14th and 23rd Street, were replaced by factories, office towers. And, you know, this wholesale destruction of things that was going on, this mass wave of construction. Well, this is just a microcosm of what's happening all over New York. There was an unprecedented amount of destruction in New York City at the start of the 20th century. From the New York Times, June 30th, 1907, quote, The buildings torn down in New York every year would make a city as large as Poughkeepsie. The money they cost would have paid for the Williamsburg Bridge. Last year, permits were issued for destruction of 618 buildings in Manhattan alone. In 1905, records show 756 structures destroyed. Thus far, permits issued in 1907 for the destruction of 337 old buildings. That makes a total of 1,700 buildings destroyed in Manhattan in 30 months. So what's happening here on Fifth Avenue is a kind of a heightened version of what's happening all over the place.
1: And needless to say, people were not terribly concerned about historical preservation
0: at this moment either. No, but you know who was concerned were some of those merchants and homeowners in the middle of manhattan and of course those who were further up which we'll speak about in a second now, here's, this is my big metaphor for Fifth Avenue here because we needed to kind of oh sort, sort the different stories that are happen, mm-hmm. happening. Think of Fifth Avenue like a wave, something that eventually starts at one end that will eventually make its way to the other end, okay? Now, imagine the merchants and the homeowners who lived on these upper stretches of Fifth Avenue. Imagine you had just built your mansion here in the upper Fifth Avenue area, and you were looking down south. This was the wealthiest street in America, it had a reputation. It's why you built your house there. Right. You were looking down at all of these factories being built and you were thinking, would my golden street here be demoted to such pedestrian concerns? And of course, behind even a lot of this was one component of the Garment District, which may have raised some concerns among these older families. And that is the fact that the Garment District largely employed immigrants, those immigrants who lived in the Lower East Side and other places.
1: They were fueling the the whole growth of the industry. Waves of arriving immigrants yeah. um, in the 1880s and 90s and 1900 were fueling the entire yeah. industry.
0: Now, of course, many of the shop owners and, and those who owned restaurants and places like that were aware that the days of these palatial residents on Fifth Avenue, that those days were numbered, most likely. But couldn't the community keep the reputation of the street intact like was there a way to basically wall off that wave from traveling up Fifth Avenue and decimating the identity of what Fifth Avenue had become so they're concerned about the brand if you will of
1: Fifth Avenue did they succeed in building some sort of wall because certainly Fifth Avenue still has a reputation today a hundred years later
0: And that's all thanks to a group called the Fifth Avenue Association, which formed in 1907, with the motto, quote, to conserve at all time the highest and best interests of the Fifth Avenue section. But this change seems inevitable. So what did they do? What was their strategy? The answer eventually was retail of the highest variety. To this day, Fifth Avenue is the most valued real estate in the United States, still because of the association's incredible success in preserving a very conservative look and feel for the street. Now, from a really excellent book on this subject called The Creative Destruction of Manhattan by Max Page, quote, The central idea behind the Fifth Avenue Association's advocacy was to retain an exclusive retail and residential area where immigrants would be scarce and beggars absent, where the most flamboyant popular culture growing on Broadway would be held in check, and where a genteeled commercial culture would hold sway.
1: So that's really interesting that the Fifth Avenue Association is formed in 1907. They're fighting this fight to keep this stretch of fifth, uh, quote, exclusive, it sounds like. And meanwhile, that's just as things are really heating up along Central Park on Fifth Avenue.
0: Yeah, if you think of this wave example again, you know, the crest of the wave began in Lower Fifth Avenue in the mid-19th century. The inclination to build wealthy houses has now arrived here at Central Park East the rich are still magnetically drawn to Fifth Avenue. Like that didn't change. Mm -hmm. While the Fifth Avenue Association is fending off the city's changes that are happening on Lower Fifth Avenue. So in the next part, we'll talk about how the new families Mm -hmm. of the Upper East Side of, of Central Park East, the homes that they made, creating an exclusive enclave here at the exact moment that New York's former exclusive district was being saved in a rather peculiar way. We'll get to that story and the rest of the fall of the Fifth Avenue mansions after this. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values on Wondery Plus. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, Tom, earlier in the show, Mm -hmm. you had mentioned that up here in the rarefied air of Central Park's Fifth Avenue, Mm -hmm. uh, that... That Mrs. Astor had built a home here at 66th and 5th Avenue, and thus this occasioned a new spate of construction along the park's edge here, right near the start of the 20th century. Right, in the mid-1890s. So who were some of the families who joined Ms. Astor here on the Upper East Side?
1: Well, the year after the Astor House was completed in 1896, William Whitney bought a home at 68th and 5th, so just a couple blocks up from the Astors, and hired Stanford White to to lavishly renovate it. And like many other families, he would then construct other homes for other members of his family. For example, six years later in 1902, his son Payne Whitney and his wife Helen Hay Whitney built a lovely home at 972 Fifth Avenue, which was 10 blocks north of here, uh, between 78th and 79th Street, also designed by Stanford White. That's the Whitney's. Uh, In 1899, Frank W. Woolworth built his home at the northeast corner of 80th and 5th, and like many others, built homes for his children. In this case, three daughters. Uh, he built them homes just around the corner on 80th Street, all of which still exist today.
0: Woolworth. Well, so this is, these aren't old New York families. These are definitely people who have made it rich and have moved to New York to, to basically plot up their own domain.
1: Right. Woolworth would not be alone in being self-made millionaires up on Upper Fifth Avenue. Another self-made man, of course, who built up here was Andrew Carnegie, who in 1902 constructed a 64-room mansion at East 91st and 5th. This was really north of everyone else. He, he even threw up a spiked fence you know, to add a little protection from the wilderness outside, and he bought up property around his house to control who his neighbors would be. His massive home, uh, designed by Bab, Cook, and Willard, sits back from the street and was surrounded by gardens, which was an unbelievable luxury at the time.
0: He essentially defined and dominated the whole area here. Right,
1: so much so that, that this area would become referred to as Carnegie Hill. And like Woolworth and so many others, he also bought a home for his daughter next door, And Carnegie would live here for the rest of his life until 1919. And his, his wife, Louise, would remain in the mansion uh, until her death in
0: 1946. And it really is one of the most beautiful still existing houses, not to spoil. Spoiler alert, still exists. Mm-hmm. One of the most beautiful houses in New York City. It's also interesting when you see the house to imagine that when it was constructed, it was just up the street from the Metropolitan Museum, which was there by that time. And of course, Central Park lay stretched out in front of it, You know, had been there for several decades before.
1: And also that it was surrounded by many empty lots, you know, some of which he controlled, uh, including one on 91st and 5th, which he sold off to his friend Otto Kahn, who was a German board financier. Kahn constructed an 80-room mansion here between 1914 and 1918. A block north of this, at 92nd Street, Felix Warburg built his family a six-story mansion at 92nd and 5th. Meanwhile, 10 blocks south of here at 82nd Street in 1899, the same year that Woolworth built, uh, you'll be quizzed on this later, (laughs) Benjamin Newton Duke of the American Tobacco Company bought another French-style mansion that was already located at the southeast corner of 82nd and 5th uh, because developers were by this point putting up mansions as Mm -hmm. well and trying to sell them off.
0: Trying to appeal to some of these wealthy families.
1: Right. So Duke buys this French-style mansion here at 82nd and 5th, And buys another one for his son on 89th Street. But it was his brother, James, known as Buck, who built probably the most famous of the Duke houses in 1912 at the northeast corner of 78th Street. That was 1 East 78th. And it was
0: here that James raised his only child, Doris Duke. So interesting, it's it's like this extravagant building craze has continued unabated to anything that I said earlier in the show. And they're just building these large mansions, but they're facing into a park, not facing each other.
1: And I haven't even mentioned Henry Clay Frick. Um, Who bought up James Lennox's old library. Remember that place down on 70th? Mm -hmm. Because by this time, by the 19-teens, Lennox had long ago uh, merged his famous library with the library of Samuel Tilden and the library of Astor uh, into what would become the core collection of the New York Public Library.
0: Which, of course, would be on Fifth Avenue (laughs) on the spot of that old reservoir. On 42nd Street.
1: And meanwhile, up here in the spot of his former library, Frick would construct his dream house designed by Thomas Hastings and constructed between 1913 and 1914. Frick himself would only live here for five years until his death in 1919, but his widow would remain living here until her death in 1931. So you get the idea, though, that this stretch of Fifth Avenue was referred to as Millionaire's Row, Really, for you know, from the 1890s until the 19 teens, and it wasn't just lined with these mansions. There were also still some brownstone townhouses mixed in, but it was these mansions that defined the stretch and really made it world famous at the time.
0: And what you're describing specifically is this concept of mansions, because of course, more kind of forward-thinking rich people were moving to other districts of wealthy apartment towers and and penthouses, such as the Upper West Side and Park Avenue. Right. And this is also
1: illustrated in the plight of the mansion built in 1911 by William Andrews Clark, who was also known as the Copper King, because I think he topped just about everybody else when he built a 130-room French Renaissance-style palace, uh, which really looks like a missing chunk of the Louvre right, mm-hmm. plunked down at 5th and 77th, designed by Lord Hewlett and Hull, it was actually beaten up in the press. Unlike so many of these other palaces, uh, it was beat up for being just too much, over-excessive <laughs> over, <laughs> and,
0: and even ugly. What was the room number that took it over the top? I mean, was it 100, it was like, <laughs> 110 rooms, 120 by, rooms? Twenty-six. 126, <laughs> they were like,
1: enough. But the amazing thing about Clark's Mansion, right, is that it's constructed along 5th Avenue in 1911, and it was demolished in 1928. This palace wasn't even around for two decades. And, of course, that's not just the Clark's mansion
0: this a similar fate had happened to so many others before and would eventually happen to many of these mansions on the Central Park, Upper Fifth Avenue wing of our story here, because, of course, the Fifth Avenue Association could only do so much in preserving the class of Fifth Avenue. The Fifth Avenue Association would become one of the most successful civic lobbying groups, I think, in New York City history, perhaps in American history. By the 1910s, this area of Fifth Avenue, above 42nd Street and below 59th Street, Mm -hmm. Midtown, 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 Fifth Avenue, became locked in a sort of cold zone. Advertising and gaudy signage was banned. There were no saloons. There were no theaters. It would, of course, eventually draw retail, but of a finer class than the middle-class department stores that were, for instance, gathering around Herald Square by this time. They were even partially responsible for the famed zoning law of 1916, which limited the height and construction of skyscrapers. And we have an entire show on that zoning law and the zoning law of 1961. So just think of Fifth Avenue in your head. Fifth Avenue has one of the tallest buildings in New York on it. Right. The Empire State Building. But think of the stretch between 42nd and 59th Street. The buildings aren't as high here. Well, isn't... Rockefeller Center, technically along Fifth Avenue? No, but if you'll notice Rockefeller Center, and I'll talk about this more in a second, the tallest elements of Rockefeller Center, the skyscrapers, are on the Sixth Avenue side. But those buildings that are facing on Fifth Avenue are shorter in height and, to be honest, are kind of less interesting. And that was done in accordance to some of the regulations that were eventually enacted thanks to the Fifth Avenue Association. They were also in part responsible for creating the Garment District. In 1916, letters ran in all of the newspapers organized by the association, these against the Garment companies. This letter was signed by all the major department stores, including Macy's, Sachs, Lord & Taylor's, saying they would only buy products from any manufacturer that was located in this special zone. Uh, between 33rd Street and 59th and 6th and 7th Avenues. So, essentially, that is the birth of the Garment District, which still exists today. So, it was the department stores that push the suppliers and manufacturers away from them. Yeah, it was kind of an extortion, right? Because they wanted to keep the they wanted to keep retail and manufacturing separate because when it spilled out, it was just a big mess and it made retail districts undesirable. So because of their efforts, Fifth Avenue remained a purely retail destination by the 1920s.
1: Apparently, that was before the customers had any concern about where their products came from (laughs) or interest.
0: (laughs) Relatively speaking, sure.
1: But it sounds like the Fifth Avenue Association was successful in pushing away the producers. Did the department stores then move in and take
0: those spots? Department stores were already... Introducing themselves onto Fifth Avenue, by 1914, Lord & Taylor had already opened in 1914 down on 38th Street and Fifth Avenue, but other department stores soon ventured above 42nd Street, including, of course, Saks Fifth Avenue on 50th, which opened in 1924, and Bonwit Teller, which opened at 56th Street, and that opened in 1930. But these department stores are really big
1: spaces. I'm, I'm assuming that some of them were taking over properties or, or the land that had formerly been mansions. They
0: had taken over bundled properties, of course, because they these department stores required so much space that they would be built on the spot of multiple old houses. Although, in 1928, Bergdorf Goodman moved to the corner of Fifth Avenue and 57th Street. And they didn't need to knock down multiple mansions. They just needed to knock down one. The massive home of Cornelius Vanderbilt II, the one that sat right next to the Plaza Hotel.
1: Wow. It seems like Bergdorf Goodman could have benefited from retrofitting Cornelius's <laughs> old mansion. I mean, that seems very on-brand because...
0: Others would, right? Yes. So some of the houses would remain and they would become boutiques. For instance, Helena Rubinstein moved into the mansion of Collis Huntington for her makeup and spa boutique. In fact, when you walk down Fifth Avenue today, you'll see buildings of different heights. It's kind of difficult to tell which were former mansions because in a lot of times the mansions just occupied very small areas of land, and those were demolished and replaced with boutiques that looked vaguely mansionish, ish Mansion-esque. <laughs> Mansion-esque, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, they even kept some of that beaux art aesthetic to make it blend into the street a little so bit. So they were
1: emulating the mansion style. Yes. Even though they were being replaced by stores.
0: Right. But there are a few mansions that still exist today. I'll talk about those in a second.
1: Okay, so you've taken us through, really, the No 1920s here, where 1930, most of the mansions south of 59th Street have been demolished or right. partially incorporated into boutiques or stores. Right, but north of 59th Street. Even today, many of
0: them still survive. And they survive because they were also converted, but not into retail. Above 59th Street, the mansions were converted into museums and other cultural institutions. For instance, the Felix Warburg House Mm -hmm. you mentioned. On 92nd Street. Yeah, that was built in 1908. Today, that's the home of the Jewish Museum. The William Starr Miller House on 86th Street is today the Neu Gallery for German art.
1: The Whitney Mansion uh, between 78th and 79th became the French Embassy Cultural Services. Uh, Doris Duke's house that I mentioned at
0: 78th Street Mm -hmm. became the NYU Institute of Fine Arts. Well, old Carnegie Mansion mm-hmm. uh, survived for many years in the family. His widow lived there until the 1940s. The house then passed on to the Columbia University School of Social Work. And in 1976, became the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, which is today, of course, the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. And last but not least, not to have favorites, but my favorite mm-hmm. Fifth Avenue Mansion is... Easily is the extraordinary home of Henry Clay Frick, which he actually constructed to eventually become a museum. His wife lived there for many years after his own death, but then it was converted into a museum and is a fantastic one that still exists today. Okay, well, those are all mansions
1: that still exist along Central Park's eastern edge. But what about in Midtown? Are any of those still around?
0: Well, I want to point out, two addresses in particular because they lie on old Vanderbilt Row. Oh. One of them is at the corner of 52nd and 5th Avenue. It's a former mansion of the Vanderbilts. one of these many Vanderbilt properties I didn't get to speak about earlier. They built a lot. <laughs> they did, but it was purchased in 1905 by a man named Morton Plant. And Mr. Plant was a financier and son of a railroad tycoon. It's like a standard-issue monopoly mogul of Fifth Avenue, this son of a railroad tycoon. Well, like so many of these families, Plant would eventually move uptown, up Fifth Avenue. He would build another mansion and live there on 86th Street. He would sell this mansion... This one on 52nd Street in 1917 would sell it to the Cartier Company, which was a French jewelry company. So believe it or not, Cartier has been on this corner for 100 years. And how much did Cartier pay for this old mansion
1: that (laughs) Vanderbilt?
0: Well, they they paid $100. $100? That would be $1,900 today. Oh, I should add, $100... And one string of pearls, a pearl necklace featuring one hundred and twenty eight pearls that was valued at one million dollars. And today that's nineteen million dollars. So essentially it was a house purchased for a necklace.
1: That is an amazing story, and it kind of gives me a gag (laughs) reflex at the same time.
0: Well, then maybe you'll want to go next door to the Cartier, which was also a mansion. It was a twin to this Vanderbilt property, 647 Fifth Avenue. It survived, transformed in 1995 into the house of Versace. And what did he pay for it? A a silk blouse? The price of a handbag. No, no. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how much the, he bought the house for. However, those are relatively small compared to the many houses that we've spoken about in these past two episodes. Modest, really. But if you want to get the sense of what one of these huge mansions might have been like, but here in Midtown, you need to actually trip on over to Madison Avenue between 50th and 51st Street. For it was here... In 1884, that a gigantic mansion was built for Henry Villard, the railroad magnate and later the owner of the New York Evening Post, that the Villard houses, that structure is still there. So go there, soak in the opulence, the beauty of that place, and just imagine it being in an essence replicated up and down the street of Fifth Avenue.
1: You know, Greg, I'm just going to throw this out there. We have spent the last two episodes talking about these magnificent structures, right, of Fifth Avenue. We haven't even touched on the thousands of people it took to keep these houses and homes functioning. These were everyday New Yorkers. Some lived in these homes, but many others commuted to their jobs. Some of those people commuted from neighborhoods such as the Lower East Side, Next week, we're going to spend the episode still in housing, but in a very different direction. We're going to be going inside a tenement and talking about life in one particular tenement on the Lower East Side. And
0: never once will the V word be uttered throughout the whole show. Versace? Vanderbilt. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) No.
1: Vanderbilt nothing down here. To reuse that pun... Uh, Although the Astors did own some tenements, but that's another story. So for this show, we thank you for joining us as we have followed the rise and the fall of Fifth Avenue mansions. Join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where there will be many photos of sumptuous residences
0: along all stretches of
1: Fifth Avenue.
0: We'd like to give thanks to those who support us on Patreon. Your support helps us make the show a better listening experience. As well, we provide extras for Patreon members to listen to. And we have events throughout the city throughout the year. So join us over on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys to support the show. And we want to thank those who already do.
1: We really couldn't be doing so many shows without your support.
0: So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.